If you would, this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to John's Gospel, and then I'm going to play a cruel trick on you and tell you that that's not where we are going to spend the majority of our time this morning. This past week has been an exercise in utter flexibility for me. I spent the first three days of this week in Oklahoma City with Steve Lawson and helping him with his conference there. And Tuesday morning, I was leaving my hotel room, and I get a call from his daughter saying, Dad woke up this morning, and he can't talk at all. He says, you're up. Wonderful. Up with what? I don't know. He says, figure it out. So uh, thankfully, I was able to dance around the issue long enough for him to get his voice back by lunchtime and show back up and uh, finish the conference. So uh, I have, I've been on my toes all week, and then I was in uh, Stephenville with uh, most, uh, most of the dads and lads uh, Wednesday through Saturday. That definitely keeps you on your toes. Um, and so uh, we're going to keep that theme this morning, and we're going to start in John's Gospel, and then there's something that's been on my heart um, that is part of this last portion in Chapter 6 that I want to dig in a little deeper on, and I think you'll see why as we move through it. But I want us to begin in John chapter 6 with our study here this morning, moving further uh, into uh, a foundation for it in the weeks to come. We'll begin in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, meaning all that Jesus has said. He's offered himself as the bread of life. He has said that whoever does not eat and drink his blood will not live. They're scandalized by this. And they're saying, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, why does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him. And here is really the crux. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. No, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, I want to invite you over to Paul's letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I know that seems like a far leap and a far stretch, but you'll see why. 
Beginning in chapter 2, verse 14 of 2 Timothy, we read this, Paul to Timothy, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, another time to gather, another time to open your word. Thank you for your word, that it is clear, that it is accessible to us. Thank you for your spirit, whom you have given to illuminate our minds and to drive it into our minds and our hearts that we both would know and would respond to that which you have revealed. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you would give us greater confidence as your people in what you have said. Cause us to know of a certainty that you do have the words of life, as Peter confessed. May we run more and more to the wisdom of your word as your people in this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to ask anyone who is successful in their field what it takes to be at the top of their craft or their trade or their art or their business, every single one of those people would tell you the same thing. They would all tell you that it's the fundamentals. All successful people, it doesn't matter what you do, all successful people do the fundamentals, and they do them exceptionally well. Musicians at the top of their game still practice musical scales. Athletes master the basics of dribbling and catching and fielding and throwing and running. I'll never forget as a young boy, Growing up in the era of the Detroit Pistons reigning supreme and battling it out with the Los Angeles Lakers for the world championship every year, it seemed like, Isaiah Thomas was my idol. The guy could dribble and handle the ball like no one else, and his college basketball coach, Bobby Knight, who would move down to our part of the world eventually, said he actually got tired of opening the gym every morning early in the morning, only to find Thomas in there going through basic dribbling drills every day. He said, I actually got tired of watching it. He practiced the fundamentals so much. Engineers run proven equations. Business owners apply tried and true business models of sound finance in order to keep the advantage and to gain the upper hand. So what do we as Christians do? We practice the fundamentals. And what is the fundamental for the Christian? 
We go back to the word. Over and over and over and over again. In fact, we don't leave the word. We stay in the word. And as we open this last chapter in John chapter 6, and we'll, we will have the next two Sundays, Lord willing, to, to finish out this section. That's the problem. You have people who leave the fundamentals of what it means to follow Jesus. They leave the word. It was by that very word that they were created. It was by that very word that they were made a nation. That God spoke. And it was. Over and over and over again. And so brothers and sisters, for us to not fall into the trap that these poor people in John chapter 6 find themselves in this this movement towards despair, we must not leave the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are twice stated in this passage as we will see. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Peter confesses then, based on Jesus' truth, where would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Unlike those in other fields, Christian, we do not possess a liberty. We do not have an option to add to what God has given. Other means may be developed for other fields in order to do something more proficiently or to do it better over time. But we will never have that. We have everything we need and it has been delivered and sealed once for all and given to us. And there we must stay like a fundamental Practicing the word over and over and over again. Why? Because there is nothing greater. Therefore, there isn't anything else for us. We have the words of life. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the very beginning, and God said, and there was that pattern over and over and over for six days. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. Each of us in coming to Christ faced that day when God said, and it was. We were awakened from our sleep. We were brought forth from the dead. And we were convinced by the very word of God as to the truth and the validity of Jesus Christ and his saving work on our behalf. And now we live. And we find life in no one else. We find life in no place else. And so this morning, I want us to detour ever so briefly from John chapter 6 into 2 Timothy chapter 2 to be reminded of these fundamentals. Lord, where will we go? You have the words of life. Eternal life. Where else would we go? Whom else could we be devoted to? What other path could we possibly take? And the answer is that we can't. Let me remind you just a little bit of the background for 2 Timothy 
Second Timothy is the second letter. I know that's genius. Because there is a first Timothy. And they're both written to the same young man in the same place. And that place is Ephesus to a very young man, probably a teenager in his mid to later years of being a teen. And he's been left in a very difficult place. The city of Ephesus, he's been left in a very difficult church. The church at Ephesus, which you will also recognize from the Apostle John's writing in Revelation, the church at Ephesus had issues. And so here's young Timothy left behind by the Apostle Paul in this city to set right the things that are wrong. And the Apostle Paul gives him this charge, be diligent to present Yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We live in an incredibly lazy day in the West. Have you noticed that? People are lazy. Lazy. They work for nothing. They expect everything to be handed to them. And I don't refer simply to a welfare type state, but we we literally don't want to work. And I'll prove that to you very simply from my own vicarious experience through Weston's life. This past summer, I had the privilege of paying for a college course. Calculus one, no less. In which... He came to me and he said, Dad, this makes no sense. Look what the teacher's sending out. He's just sending out computer code, lines upon lines upon lines upon lines upon lines of code. So Weston went to the professor and he said, what is this about? This is not calculus. We're halfway through the semester. You've taught no calculus. We've worked no equations. And the professor said, that's right. You simply copy my code into your browser and it will give you the answers. We don't need equations anymore. Computers do the work. I want a refund. I want my son to suffer. Just a little bit. We live in a lazy time. People have left the source. They've left a knowledge base. And we've become accustomed to having everything handed to us from our iPhones to fast food. We work for very little to actually have to toil over anything to bring it to its designated conclusion. Here's young Timothy. Imagine parents, I was with, and, and I, I'll say it again, I believe we have the finest group of young people on the face of the planet in this church. I believe that. I know I'm biased. But I just spent three days with the young men in our church, and I am so encouraged and blessed by them. But imagine taking your teenager and dropping them off in in one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the ancient world. Compare it to something like Los Angeles today. And say, now, there's one church in town, but it is highly dysfunctional. It's filled with false teachers. It's filled with immature believers. And uh, I'm leaving... Take care of it. Set it right. That's a tall task, is it not? One that all of us go, I don't know that my child is ready for that. I don't know that I would want to do that even if they were. And yet Paul does because Paul has a confidence 
that Timothy's abilities to, to effect change in this place do not reside in Timothy himself. It resides within something else that is inside Timothy, namely the word of God. That is Timothy's foundation. That is, as Peter confesses to Jesus in John 6, you have the words of eternal life. Are the words of Jesus in John 6 difficult? Yes. Are the words of the gospel difficult? Yes. No one wants to hear that they are a sinner. But they are the very word of God. And in the word of God, we have confidence in this, that there is life. And should we stray away from the very words of God, we have nothing to offer. Timothy will not be effective. Timothy will not be faithful in Ephesus should he stray one iota from this task. Present yourself to God, a diligent workman who does not need to be ashamed. Why? He has rightly handled the word of truth. Christian, how are you doing at handling the word of truth? When you read the difficult statements of Jesus, don't retreat to what someone says about those words. Retreat to the word itself. Rest upon the power and the authority of the words that breathe life. Paul commands Timothy, be diligent. The word literally means to take pains, to be constantly zealous for something. To be eager. To discharge a duty or an obligation to something. Now, I know college football just started yesterday. And there are people, not so much in this room, but there are people in this town who are extremely zealous week in and week out for their team. They bleed whatever color it is, they bleed. And Paul says it's that type of tenacity that that you follow this, that you invest in knowing about it, that you immerse yourself in understanding what's going on in the word Be diligent to do this. How diligent are we with the word of God? It it, it takes effort because it is a spiritual battle in order to accomplish this. It it is so natural uh, to, to engage in other things, but it's a spiritual battle, isn't it? To read the word, to meditate upon the word, to... Memorized where so many other things compete for our affections. We know statistics about our favorite team. We know all of the the specifications of our favorite, uh, you know, whatever. Recipes. Engines. Other things. We love, and it comes so naturally to us. But, but Paul has to remind Timothy, listen, Timothy, take pains that you are diligent in the word. It's reminiscent of Ezra, the priest in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Oh, to have this on your gravestones. Wouldn't this be a great thing to be said of us? Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. 
and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Would that not be a glorious thing to be buried under? Here lies so-and-so who had set his heart to study and to know the word of the living God. Is there a better way to spend one's life? To know the Lord and to know the word of the Lord and to practice the word of the Lord. But I want you to notice what Paul says to Timothy. And and here is where it takes spiritual sweat from every one of us. And it's not something we, we necessarily like to do. There are three things that Paul gives Timothy specifically that he needs to be invested in. Number one, he says, be diligent. Be diligent in what, Paul? Three things. Number one, present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Now, there are three elements to that. The word present is the the Greek word for testing. It's to put something into a fire, to test its metal, to put it through the most extreme testing, to see what it's made of, to test its metal, we would say. None of us love signing up for such testing. Timothy, be diligent to test yourself and to allow God to test you. Testing often brings pain, doesn't it? Testing often brings the revelation of things that are there that we didn't realize were there, but that we do not want to be there. And it's humiliating at times, and it's frustrating at times to to think, I did not realize this was there. I thought I dealt with that, and on and on we could go. But Paul says, listen, Timothy, you've got to be diligent, to be zealous, to test yourself To keep yourself in that sort of presenting so that when the fire is cooled, you come out and are presented to God as one who does not need to be ashamed. Athletes do it all the time. They constantly test themselves. You don't get better by playing against people that are worse than you. You get better by playing against people that are better than you. You don't get stronger in the weight room by lifting less weight. You get stronger in the weight room by lifting more weight. You don't get faster by running fewer sprints. You get faster by running more sprints and running them more intentionally, improving your form every time you run. Paul says, put yourself in that kind of testing. You must be willing and eager to subject yourself to that sort of proving ground. Secondly, he says, you must present yourself to God. You must present yourself to God. You don't present yourself to me. You don't present yourself to your spouse. You don't present yourself to the elders. You don't present yourself to your friends. You present yourself to God. He alone renders the verdict that matters. That type of accountability is something that fallen humanity has a natural allergy to. We recoil from that. Paul says you need to 
make yourself eager for the testing and after the testing to present yourself to God to get his statement on the matter. And now, thirdly, are you are to do this without shame so that the testing will reveal that you can stand before God without shame. And, and we see so greatly not only a propensity to laziness in our day, We see not only a rejection of accountability to authority in our day. And I, when I say in our day, I don't speak of the culture at large. That's obvious. I speak of the church. But lastly, we even see a rejection of shame within the church. Shame has been turned into a virtue. And it often goes under the guise of something like this. Well, I'm just messy. As if that's something to be proud of and there's no steps to remedy the thing that caused the mess. You, we don't tolerate that in our children. You come in and there's cereal and milk all over the counter. You don't just say, hey, little Johnny, what gives? I'm messy. You moms are going, you're all mothers have a little OCD in them, and they're going, ah. no, we don't accept that. Hey, 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 Christian, the testing didn't go so well. The testing revealed some things. Like a doctor running a scan, he finds a mass, it revealed something. Ah. Just embrace the mess. Hey, pastor. You know, your sermons are starting to sound like that guy on the podcast last week. Did you download that? Yeah, but I'm just messy. That's a thing now. People do that. And Paul says to Timothy, it doesn't work. You're to present yourself without shame. There are certain things that are shameful. And as a Christian, we ought not ever allow ourselves to be in the position to where we say, you know, the testing revealed a bunch of things that need to be purged from the heart and the mind and the life. But I am who I am. Paul says, no, do it so that in the testing, you are approved by God as one who does not need to be ashamed. Shame is something we, we shouldn't embrace. We shouldn't embrace the thing that causes the shame. Apparently, or I'm sorry, Hymenaeus and Philetus had no problem with it and became unuseful to the cause of ministry, even to the cause of Christ. And Paul says, put them out. There's no accountability. There's a rejection of a God-centered life where God is looking Embracing of things that are shameful. And as a result, this is how Christians often die. This is how churches die. Look at verse 14. There's a problem. Paul briefly alludes to the problem. They're wrangling about words, which is useless and leading to the ruin of the hearers. The, the, the church apparently is taking part 
collectively and individually and wrangling about things that only destroy them spiritually. Paul says, you've got to get back to the word. As Peter says, where else could we go? You have the word of eternal life. We need to go back to where we can live again. That's the call of John in Revelation to Ephesus. Repent and return. Repent and return. There's, with Christ, there is always a path back. But you won't find that path back apart from Christ in the Word. It's a call to be a workman who submits in these three areas. And it's not just for the pastor. This is for every believer. Pastors certainly like Timothy, like every pastor should lead by example, but every believer needs to retreat constantly to the living, breathing, life-giving Word of God. What are you doing on a daily basis through the Word that will affect some Godward change in your trajectory? It's a question we all need to answer. Where am I retreating to? Where am I spending my time? How am I handling the word of God? It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative that Paul gives. Every one of us are stewards that will give an account of ourselves before the Lord. And we need to do so covered in the word. How much better that day will be if, like Peter says, like Jesus has said, spirit and life ooze out of us. Life-giving words come forth from our veins because we have saturated ourselves in the hard work of the word. Accurately handling that word. It was said of John Bunyan, who, by the way, It's taken a hit, unfortunately, over the last week on social media from modern public figures who think they know better. But it was said of John Bunyan by Charles Spurgeon himself that you could cut the man anywhere and he bled bibline. He was so saturated in the word of God that you could cut him anywhere and he would just bleed Bible. Isn't that the kind of person you'd love to be? Wouldn't you love your children to cut you? And Bible just oozes out. To ask for direction and advice and wisdom and counsel, and it is saturated in the word of God? Isn't that the kind of friend we want to be? Isn't that the kind of fellow church member we want to be? Isn't that the kind of parent we want to be? That when you prick us, we ooze with scripture? Rightly handled, appropriately applied. What a glorious aspiration it is. It's a command. Paul says, do it. And not to nerd out too much, but in the Greek language, it means right now. It's not a command for later. It's not a command for when I acquire more. It's not a command that, well, after I read all of these books, then I will. It's right now. It must be true obedience, in other words. Working at summer camp with kids years ago, one 
you get these things ingrained into you, but this was a good one. Obedience is qualified by three things. It is complete, it is immediate, and it is joyful. That's true obedience. Do it immediately, completely, and sweetly. Then it's real obedience. And Paul says, do it now. Get into the word. Divide the word rightly. It will breathe life into your life. You're a steward, one who must give an account, Christian. You are not just me, not just the elders, not just Sunday school teachers. You as well. Look back at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul uses three metaphors here, all of which have a stewardship and an accountability built into what they do. There is, first of all, a soldier. And the soldier, Paul says, exists for one reason, verse 4, that he may please the one who enlisted him. He doesn't go around the barracks and say, hey, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And we'll average this out and take a survey. Most popular answer wins. No, the soldier is accountable to one person, his superior. The farmer. The farmer must plant and he must work and he must be accountable to feed his, his family is holding him accountable. He must grow crops that can sustain the family. He must sell his crops in order to feed others and sustain them by that means of income. The athlete competes, but he does not compete in his own way. Imagine a track runner, and, 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 and we've all seen videos of track runners doing crazy things. But imagine the starting gun going off and the guy, instead of running around the oval, cuts across the middle of the field to get back on the track in order to win. Does it work? No. There is an accountability to the judge who's watching the race. There is an accountability of the God who breathed life into us physically as believers, spiritually, and has given us his life-giving word constantly. We need to do right as stewards of this word. It's a command, do it and do it now, Timothy. But Paul says, listen, this is your command from your Lord, the one who oversees your life. But Timothy, do not fear. Do not see this as bondage. Because God has made a way for you. God has made it possible for you to faithfully execute your office. And isn't that true? Every time God commands us to something, God provides what is necessary in order to accomplish it. Always. It may not be in the manner we thought it would be. It may not happen as easily as we might wish it would. But God always provides, doesn't he? Where God commands, God provides, and there is a provision. There is a way to please the one who holds us accountable. And it is at the end of verse 15 in 2 Timothy 2, to accurately handle the word of truth. 
to apply it to John chapter 6, these people hear hard truths. But what do they do with the words of Jesus? They do what Paul tells Timothy not to do. They wrangle over them. It starts quietly. You remember back in verse 41 of John 6, they're whispering among themselves. But Jesus interprets and he knows what they're saying. Actually, it begins much further back than that. It begins in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, when it is only in their hearts and Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. And he brings it out. In verse 41 of chapter 6, they're beginning to mumble about it. And now when we get to verse 60, it is an all-in-all-out brawl over the words. Different Greek words are used. And this time they're coming to fisticuffs over it. That's the intensity. They're wrangling over the words. But the solution for all of us to find life, as Peter confesses to be true, when Jesus speaks, we don't wrangle. We do instead what Paul says here. We accurately handle the word of truth. I love the specificity and the clarity Of the original languages, it literally means to cut a straight line. To cut a straight line. Have any of you ever cut something and you thought it was straight? Until you laid it up against something that really is straight? That's maddening, isn't it? You can even lay it down and pop a a plumb line or use a ruler and draw a pencil line or something on it. And and you realize, man, I've got the shakes. This does not line up flush at all. But Paul says the scripture is to be cut straight. To accurately handle it. And it can be handled accurately. It can be cut straight. How do we know that? Because accompanying the word of God is always the spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A carnal man cannot discern these things because they are spiritually appraised. By contrast, a spiritual man can, by the help of the Spirit, appraise them rightly because the Spirit who inspired the Word gives illumination into the Word. There have been some today that say, oh, you know, Scripture is sufficient. And I don't for one moment denigrate that at all. But it is not sufficient to the exclusion of the God who gave it, meaning the Holy Spirit to help us understand it. That's to denigrate God. That's absurd. We can cut the scripture straight because it is clear and it is true and it is sufficient and it is wielded in the hand of the Spirit of God himself who will to his people give understanding. Praise God for that. See, I told you that whatever God commanded, he supplied. He gave us the textbook and the tutor that we might understand. How is it that we're going to stand unashamed? How is it that we don't find ourselves embarked in wrangling like the Jews in John chapter 6? We go back to one fundamental thing. Accurately applying ourselves 
to the accurate understanding of the Word of God. Forget everything else. Okay, forget everything else. Forget everyone else. Go back to the Word. God calls and commands us to be diligent students of one thing. He doesn't tell Timothy, Hey, Timothy, go out and find a favorite preacher and listen to him and see what he says, and then go apply what he says. He doesn't tell Timothy, Hey, Timothy, go get a favorite author. And absorb yourself in his system, in his thoughts, and then apply that to... No, no. Timothy, go to the Word. Are those other things wrong? No. God gives them. But are they the primary thing? Are they the fundamental? No. The Word of God is. Spurgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Visit them. Benefit from them, but live in the Bible accurately. Cut straight the word of God with the help of God. There are so many things, brothers and sisters. I say this not to scold you or to chide you. I just know because I'm with you. There are so many things that compete for our time and our energy and our, and our intellect to get engrossed in these things. That, that even are good things at times, that market themselves as Christian things, but they're not the main thing. The enemy of the best is not the worst, it's simply the good. And the best is this. Be diligent to accurately handle this. The living word of God, master it. Be mastered by it. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Who doesn't want that? You can go down to Mardell tomorrow when they open. There is not one book except the ones in the Bible section who offer eternal life. There's not one podcast you can listen to that in and of itself offers eternal life. There's not one preacher who in and of himself offers eternal life. The only way we do that is to give you this. Other things may be helpful. Confessions, creeds, books, commentaries, podcasts, sermons. They may all play a role and be helpful, but nothing has the word of life other than the word. Second Timothy, just a few probably on the same page. So just look over there. Chapter 3, verse 16. Look at how complete what you've been given is. Understand the gift God has laid at your feet. All scripture, every word has been inspired by God. Now, I don't much care for the word inspired here. The English interpreters in trying to shorten the word did a great job years ago in translating this word, but in English we've just butchered this word. Everything is in 
inspiration now. Are you inspired? Oh, yes. I watched a guy on YouTube fix his own washing machine. I'm inspired. I'll go to Lowe's and buy the parts and fix it myself. I'm inspired. I saw R.C. Sproul took up the violin at 60-something years old and learned to play. I'm inspired. I'm going to go learn the violin. It's not the same word. The word literally means God breathed. That doesn't translate so well in English today. It is literally breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is the very breath of God. When you breathe something, it is part of who you are. Thus the scripture exhaled by God is the very essence of God himself. It is revealing of the, of the person of God. It is expirated onto us. It is breathed out to us such that it is God himself. It's not just a little cute, inspirational, as we think of it, book. That you put a bow on and give it away as a gift to someone. No, this is breathed out by God himself. Thus, it has everything about the power and the work of God present within it. And then Paul goes on to tell us what that looks like. It is profitable. It is useful. It is perfect in accomplishing these four areas. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training. The word teaching used to be translated in some of the older translation as doctrine. That's what is true. The teaching is what is right, what is, what is true, what is good. What is pure, what is without error, what is absolutely accurate. The word of God is useful for that. Everything that it says is profitable to that end. Paul goes on and he says, it's not only teaching, it is reproof. You see, to know what's true, you must also know what is false. And scripture reproves, it teaches us what is wrong. It clearly lays boundaries to what is right and wrong. It doesn't leave it up to moral relativity. So that we don't stand before God and God say, How did, why did you do that? Well, I didn't know that was wrong. Oh, but we have a word that says it was. So we have what is right and we have what is wrong. But that's not enough because there are times when all of us know because we did it in the past week. We went from knowing something was right and we did what was wrong anyway, didn't we? We had a thought. We had a motive. We had a a moment of some sort, of some kind. Self-reliance, maybe. I don't know. I've got too many to know what they were. All of them. So do you. So now that I know that I was wrong, when I was convicted about it, what do I do? Just sit there and beat myself over the head and say, well, I guess that's it. That's the end of that. 
I'm damaged goods. I'm, I'm never going to be accepted or useful again. No, because Paul gives a second word for correction. Literally, okay, so you went off the path. How do you get back on the path? Scripture is useful for that. And it's breathed out by God himself. And it starts with his own son, Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness and restoration. And it, it, it goes all the way down to the level of the local church. Brothers, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, good. So here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. I, I didn't really want to be here, but I am. How do I get back? Oh, go down to the next light and make a U-turn. Sound like Siri now, right? There's the exit ramp. Here's, the, here's how you get back to what is true. And then lastly, there is training in righteousness. This is how you keep it there. This is no longer am I at the doctor for an antibiotic because I had an infection to make what was wrong right again. Now I'm down at the health food store buying vitamins and supplements to be proactive to try to stay healthy. And scripture does that for you too as well. It strengthens you. It trains you. It rehabilitates you. That, 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 that torn muscle, that worn ligament, it builds it back up so that you're stronger. Next time you encounter that, you can blow through it instead of being tripped up by it. God's given us everything we need. There is nothing that we'll encounter that isn't in those four categories. Sufficient? Why? Because it comes from an all-sufficient God. Why wouldn't we want to accurately handle that? Why wouldn't we want to dive into that? It has the words of life. Not just that you're breathing, not just that your heart's pumping, but the kind of life Jesus will get to in John 10. Life more abundant. Where does it come from? The living, breathing word of God that comes from the of God himself. When God breathes, life happens. Go back all the way to the beginning of world history. God created man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. What? Breath that is life. And man left. His word does the same thing. Job 23 verse 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Oh, that that would be our prayer. Lord, I want your word more than I want my food. Only scripture possesses this sort of appetite stimulant. Because the more you eat it, the more you want it. The more it nourishes, the more you eat. That there is no such thing as being spiritually obese. You can't eat it enough. As Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where would we go? Where would we go? You have the words of life. Why? 
Because this is what they do and this is what they possess. And this is who they speak of. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15 verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. Listen to the metaphor. And they became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The joy and delight of my heart. We see this laying on our coffee table at home or on our desk at work. We don't say, well, that's my book. That's my Bible. This is is the joy. Has anybody seen my joy and delight? Has anybody seen the thing that rejoices my heart? I want it more than food. Honey, dinner's ready. I can't. Let me finish this verse. David in Psalm 19. Oh, we all know this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Which of us doesn't want to be restored? Which of us doesn't have a soul that is at times sick with sin and the the, the dredge of the world? Who doesn't want a restored soul? Like we all want a restored land right now. Cooler temperatures, rain, relief. Who doesn't want a restored soul when it's parched and dry? Oh, the law of the Lord is perfect. It does that. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. Which of us does not want wisdom? Who, which of us doesn't need wisdom for this afternoon, let alone tomorrow? The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. Lord, why would we reject your words? Where else can we find that? Lord, where else can we find such an effective force? An effective force for good. Men's words are weak. Men's words are only words. Men's words avail nothing. That's why we have to build armies to enforce our words. But when God speaks, force is applied through the words. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23 verse 29 is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God doesn't go get the hammer. The word is the hammer. When something needs to be taken down, is not it my word like a fire, declares the Lord? Does it not burn? Does it not purify? Does it not cause us to grow? First Peter chapter two, verse three. 
If you've tasted of the kindness of the Lord, where's the kindness of the Lord revealed? It's revealed in verse 2. Sincere as newborn babes, like newborn babes, long for pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I see all these little ones running around the church today. Well, they're not running around yet, but they will be soon. They're still in their mother's arms. And that milk's been pretty good to those kids. You know? You've got Isaiah, you got Jude, you've got Adi, you've got Josiah. Those boys aren't hurting, especially Jude. That milk nourishes, it builds up, it strengthens. That's what the Word of God does. They're pure words, they're like silver tried in a furnace of earth, refined seven times. Which of us doesn't love beautiful jewelry? then let our life be crowned with the silver of the word. Perfect and pure. It's a light. Who, which of us doesn't like a little light so that we don't break our toe in the middle of the night going to get a drink of water? Your word, Psalm 119, 105, is a lamp to my feet. They, they, they used to take in ancient times little bitty lanterns and strap them to the sandal so that as you walked, it was like headlights. Your word is a lamp on my feet. It, it lights the path. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want something that will endure forever? Forever, O oh Lord. Your word is settled in heaven. There is no throwaway to this. It only gets better with time. I'm sort of a morbid fellow. Every time I drive down the road and you pass a junkyard and there's all these cars just thrown out there, I always think, you know, there was a day when somebody took out a loan And paid for years of their life for that. And it was the crown jewel of the family. And now where does it sit? Rusted out, stripped out in some guy's field. Not this. There's no throwaway, disposable nature to this. Forever it is settled in heaven. And it never ceases to accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish. Isaiah says the grass will wither, the flower will fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Think about that. Think about that. There are two things present on the earth right now that are not subject to the law of thermodynamics. Everything else is going to go Away, including this world. Even though God created it. The soul of man and the word of God will abide forever. One, because it is made in the image of God. The other, because it comes forth from God. And it lasts forever. No wonder Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. 
So, be diligent to present yourself approved unto God. A workman, one who travails, one who labors. Unashamed, because we have correctly, rightly, cut straight with the word of God. Doesn't just mean that we've parsed all the verbs correctly like you do in Greek class in seminary. It doesn't mean that you've passed the, 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 you know, the theology exam and you've got all the theology perfectly right throughout all of Scripture. I mean, hey, let's face it. John Calvin said he was only 80% correct. R.C. Sproul used to say he hoped he was 40% correct. We're never going to be perfect in our... We can try and we should try. It doesn't mean cutting it straight in all the intellectual perfections that we ought to strive for to be correct and as clear as we can possibly be. But we cut it straight with our lives. We believe it. We hope in it. We live in it. We grow by it. We cherish it. Why? The words that I have spoken are spirit and their life. So do we do that? I pray to God that we do. We're not found wrangling, but adoring and learning and believing what God has spoken. Let's bow our heads.